Hello everyone, I'm Joseph Long, and this is episode 5 of This is the Long Version. Stories and musings about 21st century parenting, education, and organizing the creative process. Enlightening conversations with special guests about music, film, art, family, history, and the outdoors. With a cup of reheated coffee from the top of a Pacific Northwest mountain, I'm Joseph Long, and this is the Long Version. Welcome to episode five. I'm so glad that you are here. I am delighted to be here as well. This episode is going to be a little bit different in the sense of fewer pieces and a bit more focus on history, literature, and science. I'm going to keep my prologues and introductions short, and we're going to kick things off with Shakespeare's Macbeth. But of course, I couldn't do without a short prologue to the prologue. And the prologue is that I will be talking about why you should read Shakespeare. It'll be short. Thank you again for being here. William Shakespeare, also known as The Bard. Why should you read the writings of yet another deceased Caucasian fellow? Well, he's considered the greatest English writer ever. So what, you say? He's hard to understand. Okay, good point. In the context of today, he might seem hard to understand. But if you can do three things, you might decide he's pretty great as well. So try doing this. Number one, this is the big and most important one. Find a fun and engaging gateway to understanding the story itself first. If you can understand what's happening, then you'll be able to get caught up in the intrigue and violence and romance and murder and mystery and all those ingredients that are part of great stories. Number two, after you understand the story, the plot and characters and what's happening, you'll ideally be able to start enjoying and appreciating the nuances of language, the razor-sharp insults, the dueling dialogues and repartee, the character motivations, and the themes that have influenced so many stories since. And number three, remember to be patient and to pay attention. Just like most things worth learning, you have to put in a little bit of extra work at first before it truly becomes fun. It's become customary today to have mass entertainment and easy options slung at us without requiring much effort, the passive acceptance of story as commodity. But the reality is that part of the genius of Shakespeare is not only his complex insight into character, relationships, and language, it's the mass appeal of his stories and plays. They are often violent and bawdy, risque and controversial, full of violence and danger and intrigue and forbidden love. They give you the opportunity to think and to feel deeply. They're a little bit of work to get into sometimes, but they're worth it. In response to number one, yeah, that one about finding a fun and engaging gateway, well, here's a gateway. I've begun writing my own gateway versions of The Bard, complete with commentary and notes. At some point, perhaps I'll include study guides and discussion discussion questions if there's a demand for it. I haven't yet, but I hope you enjoy this first one. I struggled to decide which tale to begin with, and initially I was going to begin with Macbeth, the classic tale of hubris ending in, spoiler alert, tragedy. But I decided that required a little bit more of a prologue and um, warning for content, so I decided to start off with Taming of the Shrew, a comedy which in many ways is difficult to understand 
today and is a great jumping off point for discussion afterwards. Taming of the Shrew, one of Shakespeare's comedies. What is funny? There are many answers to that question. Different things strike different people's funny bones. Yet, there are broad categories of genre that literature and film get divided into, one of them being comedy. Shakespeare's works are often categorized into tragedy, history, and comedy. Taming of the Shrew is usually stuck into this last category, but does it belong here? There are other questions swirling around this play that make it difficult to digest. A couple of them are, number one, who is the protagonist, and therefore, who are we rooting for? Number two, what was Shakespeare's intent when he wrote this? Was it intended to be received with irony as a farce on some level that illuminated issues of gender, women's rights, and societal misogyny? Or was it the work of a beginning playwright still trying to find his style and tone and simply trying to be funny in a way that would appeal to a broad audience? Let's move to the plot. The plot is this. Baptista has two daughters, Catherine and Bianca. Bianca is sweet and charming, a father's delight, and a favorite for all those around her. Older sister Kate, however, is a shrew. A shrew is an old term people used to use for a woman who is argumentative and quote-unquote foul-tempered. In other words, a woman who gave her opinion and spoke her mind. This was Catherine, also known as Kate. She was well known as an unpleasant person to be around because of these shrewish traits, and I'm moving into irony mode here in a minute, so hang tight. Poor Baptista doesn't know what to do. He's got to get his daughters married off because that's how society works in 1500s Italy and much of the rest of the world. One more quick break. This is also the point where I have a conversation with our children about absorbing stories that take place in eras and settings where expectations and equal rights were different depending on gender, race, ethnicity, and so forth. Do we completely toss out some of those stories, the ones that contain egregiously offensive material? Or do we look for redeeming values and try to experience them with some level of objectivity, if nothing else is a doorway to conversation about what is right and what is not right? And the last, where does irony kick in here? Scholars are still unclear over how this fits into Shakespeare's lineup. Was he trying to engage in social commentary? Was he trying to portray the men you'll be hearing about soon? In this story is horrible, as an example of patriarchy and chauvinism run off the cliff of acceptability, that people would first be entertained and then be horrified? Let's get back to the story. Baptista's gotta get his daughters married off. Catherine's the oldest, so according to convention, she's gotta go first, but no one wants to marry her because she's obnoxious and noisy and rude and argues with everyone. But then, Petruchio comes along. Petruchio is a fine and cheery fellow, and apparently super smart about human nature. He decides to court Kate, and asks Dad for permission to woo her. Woo means to court, to seek someone's affection and win them over. Baptista has some level of integrity and self-awareness, so he tries to warn Petruchio off, but... Petruchio insists. They haggle briefly over what the dowry should be, in other words, what money and land Petruchio will receive in exchange for handing over the property. The property being, of course, Catherine. The gentlemen agree and the wooing is on. Petruchio finally meets Catherine and it goes as expected on her hand. 
She's loud and rude and so on. But Petruchio, rather than backing down or arguing, praises her sweet and charming words and commends her gentle nature. It really is a timeless example of supreme psychological warfare, maddening in the extreme. Kate finds out she's getting married the following Sunday and expresses her preference to have Petruchio hanged instead. But, of course, she's a woman and the men have decided, so the wedding planning begins. Now, it's Sunday. All the guests are there, but no Petruchio. Huh? Finally, he shows up, but dressed like a tramp, and he's brought none of the jewelry or fine clothes he promised to bring his bride-to-be. He refuses to change his attire and reminds everyone that Catherine is marrying him and not his clothes. Ha! What a joker. The wedding begins. The priest does his thing and eventually asks Petruchio if he accepts Catherine as his wife. Petruchio swears so loud that the priest drops his book and bends over to get it, at which point Petruchio punches him and knocks him down again. I don't know why I was just laughing at this violent behavior. Apparently, they finish up. Everybody is unsure of Petruchio's strange behavior. Afterwards, he calls for wine and starts to give a big toast, but then interrupts himself to throw his drink in the sexton's face. The sexton being the guy who looks after the church and sometimes digs graves. But at least there's a big wedding feast to enjoy. Or no. Petruchio decides it's time to head out before eating. He informs Catherine, her dad, and everyone else that they're leaving and throws her on a weak and sickly horse, reminding everyone that he's her husband and he can do whatever he wants with her. They take the long way home, making sure to go through the most mud and miserable terrain possible, all the while Petruchio is yelling and grumbling about this and that. Finally, they're home, her new home, and yay, supper's ready. They get ready to sit down for a warm meal after a cold evening's journey, but... Petruchio screams, leaps up, and hurls the food off the table and orders everything removed. He does this, he shrieks, out of love for Catherine, because nothing there is good enough for her. So she misses supper. At least she can sleep after a long, cold ride. Except Petruchio discovers that her bed isn't up to standard. So he throws the covers and pillows around the room and has her sleep in a chair, since the bed isn't good enough. He awakes the next morning in time to yell at the servants for not taking proper care of his wife and joins her at breakfast, where the same thing occurs, and those stupid servants bring the wrong food again. He throws it on the floor and apologizes to his wife. She tries to get servants to sneak her some food, but they have been instructed by their master to do no such thing, so they don't. Finally, Petruchio brings his wife a piece of meat. No double entendre intended. He tells her, how much he loves her, and how he made the meat himself, and he hopes it's befitting her lovely presence. But then he observes that she has not said thank you, and he orders it taken away. Catherine is so hungry at this point that finally, finally, she manages a reluctant thank you. So she finally has a tiny portion to eat. While she's doing so, he instructs the tailor and hat maker to come in and bring her some fancy clothes for the party they're going to go to at her dad's. While she's trying these on, Petruchio has her plate removed before she's finished eating. Short version is, they get into an argument over the clothes and hat. She apparently hasn't learned that her opinion is not welcome or allowed and dares to disagree with him. He dismisses the tailor and haberdasher and informs Kate they're heading to her father's immediately so they can get there before supper. Short version of this is, they get into a disagreement over what time of day it is. 
The facts support Catherine, who insists that it's the middle of the day, versus Petruchio, who insists it's morning. But because he is the husband, and he is the man, he is right, and she must learn that. This is where the story gets really dark. We move to Petruchio changing reality in order to teach her fully and completely that he is her master. He basically says, the time is whatever time I say it is. And if I say the sun is the moon and the moon is the sun, then you will agree with me. Dark. Finally, Kate is subdued enough to relent to her husband's alternate facts and they head out. There's another incident with, old, with an old guy where Petruchio tests her ability to completely turn her back on reality again in order to ensure her submission. Satisfied, he invites the old fellow to join them. This old fellow turns out to be the father of the guy, Vincentio, who's going to marry Catherine's younger sister, Bianca. The wedding is happening that day. They arrive. Baptista is ecstatic. He got his oldest married off, and now he gets to enjoy the marriage of the daughter he really likes, Bianca. The husbands and husband-to-be sit around and joke. Mostly, the other men joke about how great their wives are and how they're so much better than Catherine because she's a... shrew. Petruchio doesn't say a whole lot, but he most definitely has a smug feeling going on inside, and finally he proposes a wager. The long version is this. Whichever wife is the most obedient will win the wager. Oh, wow. The other two fellows send their servants to summon their wives. Both servants return and inform the men that their wives are otherwise occupied and can't come. In fact, one of the women had the gall to suggest that if her husband wanted to see her, that he could come to her. How dare they, the men grumble. Then it's Petruchio's turn. He sends his servant to fetch. The servant has barely been gone when, voila, Baptista looks up and can't believe it. His daughter, the shrew, is coming immediately when her new master, her husband, summoned her. What is your will, sir, that you send for me? She asks meekly of her husband. Oh, wow. Where are the other wives? Petruchio demands. Oh, they're talking out in the parlor, Kate says. Go fetch, Petruchio orders. Catherine doesn't even reply because she's already obeying. Jaws have dropped. The shrew is tamed. Baptista, proud papa, is overjoyed and decides he wants to double the dowry because it's, quote-unquote, as if she were another daughter, for she has changed as if she had never been. Nah, said Petruchio, let me show off a bit more. So he orders her to do some more stuff, like taking her hat off and throwing it on the floor. Freshly tamed Kate immediately obeys, which makes hubby and daddy and all the men super impressed. Petruchio then orders his wife to give a tutorial to the other wives on how to be properly submissive and remember the duty they owe to their lords and husbands. She does so immediately, passionately telling the headstrong women about the importance of wifely submission and the newfound joy she has of obeying her husband's will. So Catherine becomes famous in Padua for a different reason. Not this time for being loud and opinionated, but for something much more beautiful, for being obedient. Obedient to her husband. And they all lived happily ever after. Is this story worth any level of discussion afterwards? Let's all go watch a Ruth Bader Ginsburg documentary now. Last week in science was so exciting. We talked about death stars. Oh, I'm sorry, not death stars. Black holes. Almost as exciting. This week is not quite as 
epic. But we will talk about Starlight, Constellations, and medium-sized main sequence yellow dwarf stars, otherwise known as the sun. But my hope is if you take one thing away from this episode, besides gaining an interest in perhaps exploring Shakespeare in more detail, my hope would be that from here on out for the rest of your life, you stop referring to the sun as the sun and refer to it more accurately as our medium-sized main sequence yellow dwarf star. We'll get to that in a moment. But first, starlight. You might think that stars are all the same color. Wrong, they're not. They all give off different light. Now, if I sound a little smug, it's because, guess what? I just learned that last year, and I'm very happy that I know it now. Different stars give off different types of energy, which affects the color of the light they emit. The type of energy they give off depends on different things, mainly which type of star they are and what stage they're in. And if you'd like, a refresher on the different stages of stars, and you could go to episode four, where we talk about that. As the temperature of a star increases, the light gets brighter and more blue. As the temperature decreases, the light gets dimmer and more red. Now, some of you, many of you, most of you, who know possibly far more about astronomy and the stars and astrology and such more than I do, then you may be just waiting to email or text or fax me or whatever and let me know of how what I've said is not entirely accurate. And you know what? You'd be right. Of course, there's white dwarfs and giants, for example, whose temperatures are not related to their brightness, but we are painting these ideas in broad strokes. So as a general rule, as the temperature of a star increases, the light gets brighter and more blue. As it decreases, the light gets dimmer and more red. So if you're really interested in the life cycle of stars, then you might find this information valuable. If you're somebody like me who deals with uh, some certain colorblindness issues, then you may find issues relating to color a little less valuable. Anyway, how about patterns? Are there patterns to the stars in our skies? The answer is yes. It's so much fun to look for them. We call the groupings of stars that appear in different shapes constellations. The most famous one, of course, is the Big Dipper, which is part of the larger constellation Ursa Major in the northern sky. Think of constellations as being like maps that are laid out in the night sky. People have used them for centuries to help guide their travel. Aha! So that's how people didn't get lost before GPS and Google Maps. Now, somebody like me still gets lost because it's what I do. I get lost, and I have a lot of exciting things happen to me and discover a lot of wonderful people and places as a result of getting lost, so I have no plans to continue not getting lost. But it is comforting for me to know that as long as I can find the North Star then there's no reason for me to truly be lost. Polaris is the name for the North Star, which is directly above the North Pole. Again, if you can find the North Star, you can always get your bearings and figure out where you are on Earth. At least that's the idea. That brings us to the Sun and its layers. The Sun is a star a rather important one to those of us still living on Earth, which probably includes many of you. The official description for the sun is this, and I beg of you, again, from here on out, please just refer to the sun as, as what I'm about to say. A medium-sized main-sequence yellow dwarf star at the center of our solar system. Isn't it so much more refreshing to say that than to simply 
one syllable sun. Oh, there's there's the sun. The sun is rising. Isn't it so much better and more meaningful to say, oh, look, the medium-sized main sequence yellow dwarf star is rising. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. Our sun is unique in that it's far away from other stars. Most others are hanging out in clusters or orbiting each other. But lucky us, we got the sun hanging out in the middle, keeping us all warm and giving us bright, natural luminance to properly put on eyeliner and read roll doll books on the beach and, well, to basically survive. Because the medium-sized main-sequence yellow dwarf star at the center of our solar system is what allows, is a big part of what actually allows us to survive. It has a bunch of layers, um, but I'm not really even going to go into those because I'm afraid if I talk about the core, the radiative zone, the convective zone, and the atmosphere, then you're going to forget the most, impart- the most important part of what I've just said, which is the sun is actually a medium-sized main-sequence yellow dwarf star at the center of our solar system. Next episode, we're going to talk about galaxies. I'm very excited to share some thoughts about galaxies with you. In our last episode, we left the Jewish people in the desert. They received some commandments on stone tablets. All is not well, but they're feeling good. That takes us to chapter 6, Rise of the United Kingdom. They've got the Ten Commandments. They've got the covenant with Jehovah. The Israelites are feeling especially empowered. They conquered their way through a bunch of the land and they vanquished it all, sometimes easily, sometimes with some creative thinking and deus ex machina. Eventually, they reached the fertile land of Canaan under the leadership of Joshua. Oh, by the way, Moses died somewhere along the way earlier on. So once they're in Canaan, they have to start philosophically shifting from being nomads and warriors to being settlers and farmers. Wandering around is great. But there's one thing you don't have when you're wandering around, besides a solid foundation. You have neighbors. Once the Israelites settled down, they had neighbors, and they had to figure out how to make friends and get along with them, or at least distinguish between friend and foe and who to trust and who to not. And they had a land, their own land again, no longer scattered and spread out and in servitude, their own land and their own God, God of Palestine. For 300 years, Palestine was ruled by Judges, capital J. Eventually, the 12 tribes organized themselves into a kingdom. A kingdom must have a king. So they chose a tall guy named Saul. He did some good things and some bad things and then some more bad things. Sad. Worse than sad. Tragic. There were a total of three kings during the glory days of unity. Saul established the kingdom. David strengthened and expanded the kingdom. Solomon enriched the kingdom and brought peace after a bloody beginning. So there are some good years. Have you heard the phrase, calm before the storm? Yeah, there's a storm coming. Sad. Next episode, we will pick up with, spoiler alert, the title might give a small something away, Fall of the United Kingdom. We are two months into a pandemic. I hope that you're doing well. I do. It's changed so many things. We don't know what next month will be like, what next year, what the next decade will bring. We don't know what changes at a personal or a cultural level 
it will bring to our world and some of the little things like shaking hands and blowing out birthday candles and going to coffee shops to work um, suddenly seem strange to imagine in a new world. There's a certain level of comfort and maybe humor, bittersweet humor, in thinking of some of the good times and good conversations that we had in another time, another place, not so very long ago. And I would like to share a conversation that I had with someone um, not that long ago. I call it Ralph the Tech Kid Talks 15 Inches and $3 Million. One of my favorite things is getting sucked into conversations with kids at Starbucks, especially the kids who are retired and they're to people watch and talk. I had my earbuds in, veering between Andrew W.K. and First Aid Kit while I finished up a little work and intentionally kept the volume high so I wouldn't get distracted and sucked into conversation by the two mid-70-ish kids next to me. I am good at getting sucked into conversation in those situations and environments. I could tell they were characters with good stories. I finished up at the same time one of them got up to head to the bathroom. As I closed my MacBook Pro, I could feel the remaining one's eyes and attention laser in on me. That's a big one you got, he said. What size? Um, I said, <clears throat> 15 inches, he asked clearing his throat. Right, I said, glancing down at my laptop. Yeah, I think so. Fifteen? Okay, he said, nodding. That's what I thought. What year? 2011, I said. I switched over to Mac four years ago, he said. I've got one with an SSD, a solid-state drive, and I'm telling you, these computers work. They just work. 2011, huh? Yeah, I said. I swapped out the optical drive for an SSD a while back, added some memory, and it's still running great seven plus years on. Can't do that with the new ones. He adjusted his glasses authoritatively. New ones are soldered. Learned that in my math, math class I go to every week. <clears throat> it's a big jump to make from a PC to a Mac, I said. Good for you. It's a good thing, he said, pivoting to the next topic. You from Oshugal? Sure am, I said. He nodded. Moved here in 95 from Palo Alto. Sold her house for 420000 Looked it up on Zillow. You know what Zillow is? The online real estate company? I asked. You can look up real estate prices on Zillow, he said, confirming my suspicions. Know what my old place is going for now? I do not know, I said truthfully. Three million, he said derisively. <laughs> Three million. And it's a teardown. Know what a U-Haul costs to move from California to Arizona? I do not know, I said truthfully. Eighteen hundred dollars, he said. Know what a U-Haul costs to move from Arizona to California? I am not completely certain, I said truthfully. One hundred and ten dollars, he said. Know why? Because people can't afford to live in California anymore, so they're moving out of the state. Everybody's leaving for other states. Interesting, I said. If Elon Musk gets one of his hyperloops set up in the area, then maybe that'll take some pressure off the commute and cost of living. <laughs> he said as his friend reappeared and sat down. We'll see. His friend looked at him, then over at me. What size, he asked. Is that a 15? Sure is, 
I said confidently. That's what I thought, he said, turned to his friend. We should get going. Nice chatting, I said. They nodded. We shook hands, and they headed out the door to do important things and play with their machines. I do not know what size. Cybernet and the Secrecy of Recipes I was complimenting her on another delicious meal she has made many, and she spoke of one in particular and confessed her difficulty in passing the recipe along. It's a signature dish. She's come up with it, she's played with it, messed around with it, experimented, and found sure footing. Our entire family loves it, and she knows it. It's hers. She has a pride in having created something that is hers. That's what an artist does. It's the one recipe that's hard for me to want to pass along, she said. As a note, I am putting what she said in quotes to make it seem like that's exactly what she said. It's not. It's roughly what I remember her saying. The twin notions of privacy and secrecy have gone through some mega-societal changes over the last decade. A lot of it is specific and ultra-related to technology. For example, location tracking. My brother Johnny and I have an ongoing disagreement over location sharing and tracking via cell phones. He thinks nothing of it and shares with various friends. I don't. As an aside, I am going to have him on a future episode and we are going to argue mightily about our differing opinions. He has already accused me of accusing him of just being okay with sharing his location tracking with anyone. And I am really relishing the argument that we're going to be having on the air because he is one of my very favorite people to argue with. I'm very close with him and I trust him with just about anything and everything. But I resist on principle and sometimes practicality the idea that it is my obligation to update others on my life and location in the moments it's happening. In other words, it's one thing to let people know where I have been. It's another thing to let them know where I am in the moment. Same thing with any number of events. When I share something, even a deep slice of our family's life, as I have done over the last decade, it is under my terms, under our control, and it is in reference to something past, something that has passed. I resist mightily the compulsion, and I do feel it sometimes, what sometimes feels like cultural or societal pressure to let people know what's going on in our lives in the moment. This is a tiny digression, but we see a certain example of this in contemporary fiction, especially uh, fiction that's written for middle school or YA. A lion's share of novels are written in the first person, which is a much more immediate, in the moment, this is happening now kind of experience than, than the traditional third person, which isn't better per se, yet does provide, I think, a greater opportunity for playing with time, reflection, suspense, a greater scope of history and context within the framework of the story. I've read plenty of first-person tales I love, and this has certainly been a wonderful time over the last 15 years for an increased bounty of fantastic YA novels, many of which are written in the first person, an approach that feels much more grounded in the present and what is immediately happening than third-person limited or third-person omniscient. So I am resistant to the notion of simply sharing information or location 
simply because it seems like the thing to do and quickly devolves into that timeless question when it comes to state intrusion into private citizens' lives. Well, I don't see what the big deal is. I don't have anything to hide. I'll ignore the idiocy of the second part. Of course you do. Everyone has something to hide. I stand firm on that. The first part, what's the big deal? This is the big deal. Choice. I resist the idea that I don't have choice or agency in things that I think I should. I resist the fact that I need to share information in any context with others because... What's the big deal? I resist the idea that much of what is created today is commodified. Whether it's a painting or a photograph or a music library or anything that someone has made that has value and is not, like much of the world today, infinitely replicable and reproducible. I am not a Luddite. I love technology and how it provides different and assorted paintbrushes for us to use in the creation of content for the betterment and beautification of humanity and our world. For us to use. Not for us to be used by. The word technology comes from the Greek techna, which means art or skill. Before that, the ancients used the word tech, T-E-K-H, to refer to weaving or building. Probably not the first activities you think of when it comes to technology. Ology comes from the Greek logos or loja, meaning word or study. So technology refers to studying an art or skill. For me, and I suspect for many, the word technology usually brings up visual images of computers, tablets, phones, robots, possibly cyberdyne, that sort of thing. Baskets, weaving, building, etc. Not so much. But that's what technology is. The study of an art or a skill, and then the application of that art or skill, usually in a scientific context, to improve humans' lives. To improve humans' lives. This makes me think of the Christian idea of Sabbath, a day of rest taken once a week in which the biblical intent was to step away from work and obligations and focus on building communion with God, the natural world, each other. It's such a wonderful idea that it's been adopted outside Christian communities as well and is often endorsed by many in the health communities as well as the broader secular world. The reason is it's good for you. The idea of a Sabbath, a day of rest, a day to step away from much, full circle here, technology, is good for you, for anyone. Just like our bodies and brains need regular sleep in every 24-hour cycle, our bodies, brains, and souls need a stepping away every seven-day cycle, a rest. It's good for us. I firmly, heartily, absolutely endorse doing everything possible to make this happen in your life, because it will be good for you. If you prioritize that singular, committed, ongoing day of rest, you will be better at whatever it is you do for the other six days. You will. Technology is wonderful, but like a Sabbath, it is meant to be used by us, for us, not the other way around. We are supposed to make technology work for us. This is not a new thought, not an original idea, but I think it's one worth repeating. Hugh McLeod, the fellow behind the Gaping Void website, wrote a wonderful little book several years ago. My mom gave it to me. She often gifts me a book with no reason except for, this made me think of you. It's called something like Ignore Everybody, 39 Steps to Creativity, something like that. So Mr. McLeod is also an illustrator, and he does all his little doodlings on the backs of business cards. I'm paraphrasing here, 
But one of the things that struck me the most and has stayed with me is how he responded to the question of people stealing his idea. His idea is very simple. His drawings are quite simple and funny. And I love his answer. It was something along the lines of, I don't worry about it. If someone can crank out cartoons on the backs of business cards better and faster and funnier than I do, then good for them, and I ought to move on to something else. Total paraphrase. That's what I took from it, though. In other words, he's not protecting the process because he trusts in his own work ethic and commitment to keep drawing and cranking them out, and also his ability to consistently keep coming up with funny and original ideas for his illustrations. He's talking about the act of making the act of creating, the act of doing something over and over and over again. He has a confidence in his ability to do so, and it's an analog process, a messy one that is different every time. Andy Warhol might have some different ideas on this, but art is meant to be a little different every time. It's meant to be different and unique and not replicable, in binary version for infinity. At that point, it's commodified. Our kids get in arguments sometimes, which is fine, and bickerings sometimes, which is not fine. Oftentimes they revolve around the idea of being copied, as in, you're copying me, you're stealing my idea. I come back again and again to the value in copying. In stealing Austin Kleon's well-articulated tome to creativity, Steal Everything, and learning from those who have already done something well, and using their work and process as a jumping-off point for improving your own skills and abilities. That was the accepted practice for centuries in the art world. You want to become a master painter, you become one by replicating the great works of the masters and honing the craft as you develop your own voice. Eventually, you master the technology of the craft and use that skill to develop your own voice, which is what an artist in any form does. But digital replication has changed all that. It's not about sharing something special with someone, that one thing that ties you together and forges a bond. It's not about sharing a piece of music with one other person because you feel they too would love it. It's not about gifting a film recommendation or book that is special to you and might be special to another person. It's not about sharing a special place or a special single photograph or a piece of art or recipe. It's about how these things have commodified in the sharing process and lose their value along the way. I am not all on the side of don't share ideas, keep them to yourself. Not at all. I am teacher and parent. And by default, teachers and parents have to understand that one of the fundamental pillars of being a good one is expecting that those you are helping are going to steal from you. They're going to steal your best, and that is a good thing. It requires confidence and humility to allow yourself to be stolen from. The confidence to believe that what you have created or done is of value and therefore worth stealing. And the humility to know that there will be and should be others who will take what you have done, who will take your ideas, your process, your recipe, your technique, whatever it is, and make it better. They will do something with it and make it their own, and that is a wonderful and wondrous thing. So what's the big deal with sharing? I suppose it's about control and trust. There are things that I recommend to everyone. Everyone should listen to Franz Liszt's Liebestrom and Cat Power's rendition of Amazing Grace. Everyone should read Roald Dahl's Matilda and any of Malcolm Gladwell's books. Everyone should watch Amelie and The Sound of Music at least three times in their lives. But not everyone should listen to Death Heaven or Colin Stetson. Not everyone should read Jorge Luis Borges or Flannery O'Connor. Not everyone should watch Brick or 32 short films about Glenn Gould. I save different things for different people. 
I know that once I share something, whether it's something I made or created, whether it's something I listened to or watched or read, whether it's a place I visited or a person I experienced, that once I share it, it's out of my hands. The idea of authorship is removed from me, and I no longer have control over how it is spread or how it is received or absorbed or remixed or reshaped or reshared. I know and acknowledge that at that point, I'm choosing to give up control over how and where it goes. But up until the point it leaves me, resist the urge and the pressure to just share without thinking. To pass along without thinking of the audience, I think, might connect to something to try and keep some things precious in a world filled with white noise. We live in a world where the concrete is valued, where the concrete ways in which people contribute to society are most valued. If I sound like I have a chip on my shoulder, well, perhaps a small one, and I fight hard to not even have a little one, but it is hard. I'm not an engineer or a doctor or a scientist or someone whose accomplishments are readily apparent in terms of advancing human progress or bettering humanity. I think I do represent, however, the unarticulated thoughts of some, perhaps many, whose contributions come in small and abstract and ongoing ways that benefit humanity, and whose value and benefit may come from the knowledge that we are sometimes helping develop processes, ideas, and art that will be copied, that will be sent out to the world to be used and reused and remixed, often and frequently without attribution. Because we are used to commodification. You want something, you go online and simply get it. You get the same thing that everyone else has the ability to get. A photo, an image, a drawing, a song, an album, a book, a recipe. You take and you use. I accept that as reality. I even accept that there is great benefit to sharing ideas. But I also fight for the ideas of originality, of idea creation, of attribution, of acknowledgement, of saying thank you, of building up and supporting other artists and creators and inventors and innovators and of thinking thoughtfully and mindfully about sharing, of differentiating between what to share, A, with the masses, and B, with individuals. They both have their place, but they are both different. Let us consider thoughtfully what we share and who we share with. It is a beautiful and lovely thing to share what we care for with others we care about. A very pretty day to you, my beautiful people upon this lovely and singular earth. I'm going to request that my bride make a very delicious and very secret dish for supper tonight. Thank you for listening to my fifth episode. Let me know if you have suggestions, requests, or feedback, or just some music you'd like to share with me. I appreciate your support, and please subscribe here if you like what you've heard. In the meantime, as always, you can go to Very Long Chronicles or Very Long Media for more stuff. Also, a shout out to my brother Jeremy Long for the delicious little musical tag that he's done that you've been hearing throughout and that you will hear in just a few seconds. And another shout out to my brother Johnny, who is a great sport. I called him to ask him. I said, okay, so I'm kind of throwing you under the bus on this thing. I'm going to have you on a future episode, but I'd like for you to listen to it first and just make sure that, you know, it's cool. And he didn't bat an eyelid, which I wouldn't have known since I was talking to him on the phone, not FaceTiming. But I don't think he even batted an eyelid. And he said, you know what? I trust you. It's fine. Just use your judgment. So I love the fact that that he trusts me even when I'm throwing him under the bus. And as I said, he's going to be on a future episode to, and we're going to argue and it's going to be epic and happy. I hope you are well and healthy, having some happy moments. Play hard, make stuff, be kind. Until next, 
Joseph out. This is the-